Good morning. Today's scripture reading is taken from the entire chapter of Matthew 3, found on page 935 in the Pew Bible. John the Baptist prepares the way. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The baptism of Jesus. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting, lightning on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. May the Lord add his blessings to the reading of his word. Thank you very much, Esther. You may be wondering, why is Yuri preaching about baptism <laughs> on a Sunday when we're not even baptizing anybody? And I've probably been asking myself that question as well. The short answer is that over the last few months I've been thinking a lot about baptism as Joel and I have walked through what baptism means together. And then it struck me that 
we don't actually preach much about baptism, which is odd, since it's something that is so central to our practice at Bethesda and really to the whole church. So it seemed like um, for the future, we should all be thinking about baptism, both those of us who have been baptized in the past, reflecting on what it means, and also for those who have not yet been baptized as believers, considering why that might be something we ought to do. And the other thing that really prompted me to want to preach about baptism was just being struck, some of the events that we already heard about this morning, with the darkness of the world. And baptism is a radical step that stands in opposition to the darkness of the world. And in fact, I wrote down, I jotted down, why baptism? Because we live in a wasteland we refuse to see. We live in a darkened world, dead and dry. But baptism is the sound of a splash in the wilderness. And as I was finishing up my sermon, I was realizing that I should probably read one more passage uh, from Scripture that I rely on pretty heavily and we return to fairly heavily. So if you turn also to page 1178 in your pew Bibles, this is 1 Peter chapter 3. And I'll read that portion as well. 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 18. That's page 1178 in your pew Bibles. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Let's just pray before I launch into my message. Lord God, may this not be my message. May it be your message to us. Lord, may the words of a mere man resonate in the hearts of your people. Lord, may it be that sound of a drop or a splash in a parched soul. Open our hearts, open our eyes, that we may see wonders out of your law. Amen. Well, John the Apostle, at the very beginning of his gospel, tells us of a man who was sent from God, whose name was John. He was not talking about himself, of course. 
But for most people reading the Bible for the first time, it's a little surprising to learn that each one of the gospel writers gives so much prominence at the start of their accounts of Jesus' ministry to this John, Jesus' cousin, also known as John the Baptist. And for anybody, especially for young ones listening, just to clarify, it probably won't hurt for me to say that he's called John the Baptist not because of the kind of church he went to. Um, He's called John the Baptist because he baptized a lot of people. Well, each one of the gospel writers very plainly insists that John the Baptist is the person Isaiah wrote about centuries before. He was the voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. That's in Isaiah 40, chapter 3, if you want to check it out later on. God sent this John, the Baptist, into a dry, deserted wasteland to call out a message. The message was, repent, for the kingdom is of heaven is near. Jesus, Matthew tells us later on, took up the exact same message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. John the Apostle also records that some of John the Baptist's disciples became Jesus' disciples, and that both John's disciples and Jesus' disciples baptized people in the Jordan River, out in the wilderness, and even that there was a kind of friendly competition seeming to go on between them. To most of us, this doesn't seem all that strange, but imagine that you are someone who has not read the Bible, or at most, just the Old Testament. Baptism, what looks like one person shoving another person under the water, would seem quite foreign, perhaps bizarre, or maybe even like a not very funny practical joke. Baptism is maybe a little too familiar to us. We take for granted that it's important. We know that it's something that you have to do to become a member at many churches, including here at Bethesda. We also know that what we call baptism certainly looks very different from what Catholics or Anglicans or Presbyterians call baptism. But still, we don't often think much about that, other than to wonder if those differences are just sort of like a personal preference. We kind of assume that it's just something our church does without troubling ourselves too much about it. But baptism, according to the Bible, is more than just important. It's utterly distinctive. It's something that radically marks a person. And it's something that seems, seems to appear suddenly, out of nowhere. It's certainly not obvious in the Old Testament. The Gospels make a big deal out of John the Baptist and his strange appearance, seeming to suggest not only that he was weird, but also that what he was doing was also a departure. The religious leaders clearly couldn't fathom what he was up to out in the desert, since they sent a delegation up from Jerusalem to ask him who the heck he thought he was and just what it was he thought he was doing out there. So even though ceremonial washing was a thing long before the days of John the Baptist, it was only a thing that certain people did at certain times. But John welcomed everyone all the time, if you can call 
calling them a brood of vipers, a welcome. But still, he welcomed everyone all the time, which made John's baptism an innovation and a bit of a puzzle. Well, we heard Matthew quoting him, explaining to people exactly what his baptism meant. This is in verse 11 of Matthew 3. He said, I baptize you with water for repentance. In other words, his startling practice went hand in hand with his even more startling preaching. He called them out from the everyday world, from the wasteland they refused to see, to the desert they couldn't deny. He called them out to remind them that their world was full of sin and deserved to go to hell. But in the desert, there was hope, a refreshing joy that came from confessing and repenting of your sins. So John's message, as harsh as it sounds, was ultimately hopeful because it was only the preparation for a deeper purification that even John struggled to imagine, much less describe. Someone was coming. The kingdom of heaven, along with heaven's king, was near. And John knew that he was only his opening act. Now, later on in Matthew's gospel, we learn that John was the greatest man who had ever lived. And this isn't just Matthew's opinion. We hear it from Jesus' own mouth. But when Jesus, John's cousin, turned up at the Jordan, John recognized it doesn't seem right to baptize Jesus according to my baptism of repentance. As he said, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Well, Jesus' reply to him signaled not just a massive shift in the meaning of baptism. It connected baptism with, well, literally everything. Or at least everything that God is. Everything that God had done in the past. And everything God planned to do in the future. More specifically, the second half of Jesus' reply to John found in verse 15, reveals what it meant for Jesus to be baptized and for us to be baptized as believers in Jesus Christ. So let's look again at verse 15 of Matthew chapter 3. Verse 15 of Matthew chapter 3, Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Now, notice in that verse the word proper. According to Jesus, it was perfectly proper for him to be baptized by John. He kind of brushes aside John's concerns, but it wasn't because he wanted to make light of them. In fact, John's concerns were well-founded. They were right and reasonable according to John's logic of what baptism is. But Jesus is about to explain that John's logic, as sound as it is, is to be transcended. Now also notice the word us. It is proper for us to do this. Jesus' baptism was not only proper, it was something they had to do together. 
John was more than a mere bystander, much more than just a vessel. He was not incidental. Jesus came to John on purpose. John was Isaiah's voice calling out in the desert. John was essential to the inauguration of this new baptism, baptism into Jesus Christ. So just what does baptism into Jesus Christ signify? Or to put it another way, why should Christians get baptized? Jesus summarizes that in that last final phrase, to fulfill all righteousness. Since Jesus was without sin, his own baptism was obviously not about confession, not about repenting of sin. Rather, as he says, the purpose was to fulfill all righteousness. And we follow Jesus' lead. In other words, Christians are not baptized with the baptism of John, a baptism of repentance. Christians are baptized into Jesus Christ, a baptism fulfilling all righteousness. Well, what does that mean? For most of the rest of our time together, we're going to look at each of these words in turn. First, the word all, to fulfill all righteousness. This all, this all is the word that makes talking about baptism so difficult. How do you describe a category that includes everything? Jesus gently corrects and reassures John that baptizing him is indeed proper because it is to fulfill all righteousness. And what Jesus is implying, not so subtly, is that John's baptism of repentance, while it was both right and righteous, was not complete. John's baptism brought about a partial righteousness. Jesus' baptism would fulfill all righteousness. Repentance is righteous, but it's only a turning from one way to another way. Repentance is righteous, but it's not the end of the road. It's the fork in the road. And John himself would have agreed with this. He understood that his role was to prepare the way. He looked for the one who would come after him, the one who was more powerful than he was, the one whose sandals he was not fit even to carry, the one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. But what he thought that would look like and he was not alone in this, was that the Son of God would come with an incinerating whirlwind of judgment on the earth, his winnowing fork a flashing weapon to thresh the righteous and thrash the unrighteous. His own words tell us he was not expecting someone like his quiet cousin. He was not expecting a lamb. No, he was not expecting that Jesus who he readily admitted was a better man than he was, would shame him, humbling himself before him, asking to be baptized by him. He was not expecting the honor that Jesus would bestow on him through humiliation, not expecting to be pierced by the Holy Spirit or ravaged by this fire, not expecting to bear the self-abasing exaltation that was immersing Jesus according to Jesus' own baptism. The word all also hints at the frustration 
that was the unavoidable wrinkle in John's baptism of repentance. John's baptism didn't produce a lasting righteousness, a thorough righteousness. We know this again from his own words that we love to laugh about, brood of vipers. It's not just some generic insult. It refers to a clutch of eggs, eggs that hatch only to reveal a nest of venom and violence. Referring back to Isaiah 59, verse 5. It describes people who aren't what they appear to be, aren't what they should be. Matthew records him directing that comment to the Pharisees, men who seemed so obviously good. And to the Sadducees, men who, if not good, at least commanded respect. But Luke goes even further in the Gospel of Luke. He relates that John characterized the whole crowd as a brood of vipers. People who identified themselves as children of the faithful Abraham, but whose inner life revealed that they were spawn of the serpent. To fulfill all righteousness means that in Jesus' baptism, a way would finally be revealed to deal with our chronic and seemingly incurable hypocrisy. All righteousness means that we can actually hope to persevere, that the axe which was previously laid at the foot of the tree, poised to strike, could be put back in the shed. And of course, all means everything, all at once. Again, this makes Jesus' words hard for us to fathom, since nothing we do ever achieves that kind of wholeness. Jesus' baptism was a perfect moment. It was a moment in which the Trinity, God himself in all his glory, always present but never obvious, burned through the veil of what we normally think of as reality touched, torched the wasteland, at least for those with eyes to see and ears to hear. Jesus' baptism clearly revealed for the first and possibly only time in human history the complex personhood of God as he exists eternally, immersive, endlessly filling and pouring, three in one, seamlessly distinct. Christians are baptized into Jesus Christ in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit to fulfill all righteousness, to demonstrate our submission to the all-pervading, all-encompassing, all-demanding God, and to show not only the righteous repentance that puts us on the proper path, but the sure and certain hope that this same God will keep us setting one foot in front of the other, whatever we face. Next, the word righteousness. What does righteousness mean? Well, righteousness talks about patterns, patterns that we can observe, patterns that display God's character in the world, both throughout biblical history and 
in the mysterious imagery of God's prophets, God's patterns that reveal God's character. In the most distant past, in creation, we actually find images that remind us of the scene of Jesus' baptism. Remember Genesis 1 verse 2, the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. And then the living Word of God himself invading the waters, separating water from water. And then projecting us long into both future and past, deep into realities we cannot yet perceive and barely understand, we read of a river, a river whose unspoiled source lay in the Garden of Eden, watering the rest of the world. We find that river again in Ezekiel 47 and Joel 3 and Zechariah 14 and the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, a river flowing from the throne of God in the eternal temple, widening and deepening to the point that it cannot be passed through, all the way to the sea, making the salt water fresh and all the living things somehow more alive. In Psalm 46, we read of this same river, but there it's set against another common biblical image of dangerous, raging waters, turbulent forces threatening to overwhelm God's people, the stark realities of life threatening to upend our trust in him. While the Apostle Peter picks up on this in his reflections on the meaning of baptism. 1 Peter 3, as we read, says that baptism now saves you, but he's careful to clarify Baptism now saves you, but not in the manner you might have thought. It's not a glorified bath. It's not the removal of the dirt from the flesh. In other words, it's not the symbolic washing away of sin, as we've already seen. According to Peter, baptism distills into its truest aspect how God is always saving his people, that he is Lord over the seeming chaos, that he and he alone keeps us from being carried out to sea. Jesus' baptism fulfills all righteousness because it is a prophetic sign. It is a prophetic sign. In baptism, God's saving acts of righteousness are displayed in a summary form. Peter talks, as we heard, he talks about an instance of salvation that took a similar shape. Noah and his family being preserved by God from the flood. He refers to it in a way that kind of bends our normal perception of time. He sees God's rescue of Noah and his family as a kind of residual impression. But it's from the future an echo of the future. In other words, starting, he starts with Jesus' own baptism. He sees all Christian baptism as an eternally true event. And he uses a word uniquely in the scriptures at this moment. He calls it an antitype. That's the theological, technical term. He sees Christian baptism as an eternally true event that leaves its stamp on everything that happens, whether that's in the past or in the present or in the future. 
In other words, baptism is the original. And anything that resembles it, regardless of when it takes place, regardless of whether it seems like a bigger deal than someone getting immersed in a tank on a Sunday morning, is a mere copy. Baptism is the original. Everything else is a copy. Jesus' baptism is a prophetic sign, a light that casts shadows in all directions. One of those shadows is God's saving of Noah and his family in the flood. Another, according to Paul in Colossians 2, was circumcision, the putting off of sinful flesh. Still another was the parting of the Red Sea as God rescued Israel out of slavery in Egypt, which Paul again hears as an echo of baptism and of our rescue, of course, from slavery to sin. We find that in 1 Corinthians 10. But the main thing to understand about this and to ponder is that those events, those practices, are shadows of baptism, not the other way around. Jesus was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. And Christians are baptized into his baptism because Jesus' baptism shows the true pattern. God's righteous character shown in righteous images of his righteous presence in the world and of his righteous acts throughout history to save it. And here we turn finally to the word fulfill. To fulfill, meaning to complete. Jesus' baptism beautiful and pure in itself, a prophetic sign also fulfilled all righteousness. In, in other words, it brought all righteousness to completion. How did it do this? By tying the beginning of Jesus' ministry to its glorious end. This is the most overwhelming and, and challenging aspect of this. Jesus' prophetic sign of baptism initiated and even foreshadowed the sequence of events that have the greatest significance for us and for all of creation, for all of time. Jesus' baptism kicked off God's plan, which was worked out before time ever began, to redeem us and the whole fallen, wasted world through his own death and resurrection having inaugurated the plan that day in the Jordan River, it was as good as done. As we heard in our call to worship this morning, Isaiah 54, which is the postscript to Isaiah's prediction of Jesus' atoning sacrifice, this is like the days of Noah, when I swore that the waters of Noah would never again cover the earth. Baptism fulfills all the righteous predictions, all the righteous shadows by anticipating the all-righteousness that was the cross and the empty tomb. The long looked for, but never, but ever unexpected invasion of the Trinity into the wasteland. But, but we often forget or refuse to believe, or, or worse yet, pledge allegiance to this darkened world, dead and dry. 
Baptism makes an unwelcome sound, an an embarrassing sound, a, a splash that reminds us that we are in the wilderness still. For us, baptism is also a prophetic sign of submission to another kingdom, a kingdom that is always present but never obvious. Baptism, when it is true baptism, is always a radical challenge to the world as it is. Baptism marks the baptized with suspicion. Collaborators with a foreign occupier. Here's 1 Peter 3 again. Baptism, Peter says, now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels and authorities and powers in submission to him. In other words, baptism is, as one commentator says, a pledge of oneself to God. In baptism, we are joined to the resurrection, resurrected, reigning Christ. Put another way, All righteousness is fulfilled in baptism only as we submit to and participate in Jesus' reign. He is our King. He is our Lord whose death we must embrace, continually putting our sinful desires to death in Him. His Spirit joins us to Him, giving us new life in Him. In baptism, we make public our allegiance to the king the world sees as its mortal enemy. Thus, baptism, true baptism, makes us a target, not just another person in our community. This is not something we like to hear, certainly not something we want our children to endure. We would actually prefer that baptism actually was just about repentance, just a symbolic washing, or better yet, just joining ourselves to an inspirational community of like-minded individuals. And to be perfectly honest, for a lot of people, for a long time, this is what baptism has meant. Baptism has become, for many, merely a rite of passage, the price of admission to, a, to full participation in a community. And this has contributed greatly to the gradual weakening and disintegration of the church. This is why we have to think carefully, not only about what baptism means, but how we practice it and safeguard it. But that's a question for another day. In fact, that's what we'll talk about in greater detail next Sunday. So for today... We'll content ourselves with baptism's joyful meaning. Baptism plunges us into the plan, into the pattern, into the persona of God himself. Jesus was baptized by John to fulfill all righteousness. When we faithfully follow him into the waters of baptism, we too are baptized to fulfill all righteousness. As we are submerged under the water, 
we are buried with him, Paul tells us. As we break the surface, we rise to live a new life, united with him in his resurrection, fully alive to God in Christ Jesus. The whole people of God, we participate, participate afresh in this fulfillment at every baptism we witness. You felt that, right? And as Jesus experienced the moment he went up out of the water, the whole community of the baptized feels heaven open. We all perceive the eternal reality as if for the first time. With John, we see the Spirit of God descending like a dove, and we hear the blessing of our Father once more. These are my children, whom I love. With them, I am well pleased. Let's pray. Lord God, do we believe that you are pleased with us, that not on the basis of a shrug, we've done good enough, do we believe that, like John, we are pleasing to you because you have humbled us before you. Are we to be baptized into you day by day? Will you carry us through the flood? Will you part the Red Sea? Will you circumcise our hearts once again? Will you humble us with your Holy Spirit and with fire? Pierce us and ravage us, Lord, that we may be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in an uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Amen and amen. Go with God's grace.